0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton.
1: Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. And I'm so delighted to have you here today uh, for another episode of the Leading Diversity at Work podcast sponsored by Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, Today, we have a very special guest, Alan Bowser, who is co-head of the Americas region at Bridgewater Associates, where he oversees client relationships in the US and Canada for the world's largest hedge fund. As a member of the firm's diversity council and senior sponsor of the Bridgewater Black Network, Alan is a leader in shaping Bridgewater's D&I strategy with an emphasis on attracting and retaining African-American talent. Alan joined Bridgewater in 2011. Beyond Bridgewater, Alan is a board member for the Robert Tuego Foundation, which prepares underrepresented talent for leadership and helps businesses create environments where those individuals can thrive. Alan has also been a member of the Executive Leadership Council and a board member of the New York Urban League. His DNI leadership, including his involvement with 100 black men of Stanford, has been recognized by officials such as US Congressman Jim Himes. We're very delighted to have Alan here because his undergraduate bachelor's degree is, is from the Wharton School. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. We always love to have our alum back. And he also, you know, not to uh, put this affiliation down at all, he also holds a master's degree from Oxford. So Alan is here today to offer a unique perspective on his experience as one of the top black executives at Bridgewater and and what it was like to work his way up to the industry, to the esteemed role that he holds now. And we think he has super interesting thoughts on how diversity brings a unique edge to Bridgewater's talent strategy. So without further ado, Alan, thank you so much for joining us here today.
0: Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, It's great to be here. And I almost feel like I'm back at Penn, so that feels extra special.
1: People tell me that, you know, as soon as they start talking to the professor, all of a sudden, things like, okay, is my participation going to count? uh, They start having a little bit of trauma, Uh, and I'm not here to make this a traumatic experience for you today. I'm hoping that this will be as enjoyable for you as it will for me, and there are no grades attached to your participation here today. How about that?
0: that? That sounds good.
1: Okay, great. So I'd like to begin by talking about your career trajectory, and more specifically, I want to talk about professional relationships. Uh, and, I, and I. this is so important because I know for so many people in thinking back on their own career, oftentimes um, what comes to mind is all of the effort that you had to put in to get to where you are. And without a doubt, one does not achieve the success that you've achieved without um, perseverance and without, uh, you know, intellect and without motivation. But what we know from the research is that our relationships with other people in the professional space are undoubtedly um, really important to our success. So I want to talk about those relationships. We can think about mentors, sponsors, allies. There are lots of ways we can term these these relationships. But I I want to know a little bit about some of the relationships that you feel that um, were vital to getting you helping you to get to where you are now.
0: Sure, Stephanie, and you know I think it's a great point. Anybody who thinks, uh, you know, I love that phrase, "self-made man" or "self-made woman." There's no such thing. Anybody who thinks they got where they are without the significant help of others is probably just not seeing the whole picture. And uh, you know, I'm no different. Uh, there are probably too many role models, mentors, sponsors, uh, you know, in my career path to, to name them all. But I I think there's three that were really centrally important that I would highlight. Um, One actually with a Penn connection, the other at least with a Philadelphia connection, and then there's a third that's also very important I want to talk about. Um, You know, the first, when I was at Penn, uh, actually as a junior, I had the opportunity to take a graduate course from uh, a circuit court justice who was also teaching in the law school, His name was A. Leon Higginbotham. The Third Circuit is located in Philadelphia. And he was teaching a course on race in the American legal process Uh, that really was just an eye-opening course. But more importantly, it led to an opportunity for me to ultimately work for Judge Higginbotham as a research assistant um, as he was writing uh, a seminal research series. And uh, he was literally a giant of a man. I say that figuratively, but also literally, he was about six, five and a pretty big framed guy. Um, and it was really a great opportunity for me to be close to excellence and pinnacle achievement that looked like me. Mm -hmm. And, and I can't tell you how powerful and important that was, especially at that point in my life, because I think a lot of what people gain out of college, or I hope people gain out of college, is in addition to the knowledge, you should come out with a sense of confidence, a belief that you can tackle anything, that whatever's put in front of you, you can climb that mountain uh, to get to the pinnacle. And, and, and I got a lot of that from just watching and being around and experiencing uh, Judge Higginbotham and how he operated and, and just looking at what he had achieved. The second person I'd call out, you know, my my, my first uh, career, if you will, was in politics. Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to be chief of staff to uh, the congressman from the 2nd dish- District of Philadelphia, William H. Gray III. But describing him as the congressman from the 2nd District dramatically underestimates who he really was. He rose in 10 short years to be the number three member of the leadership team of the House of Representatives. The literal position was the whip of the House. So here was another chance for me to see excellence and achievement in action, but it was also an opportunity to really get a real-life lesson in organizational and relationship savvy. Why do I say that? When you can come into the U.S. Congress and in 10 years navigate your way to the top, think about what you are literally doing. You are literally navigating through the diversity of this country. The U.S. Congress represents every corner and every quadrant of the United States, every community, every state, every district. It really is the country's diversity on display. And from Bill Gray, I learned how to navigate that. Hmm. Um, he, he I, We used to call him a crossover politician because he was just as good in the Black Baptist church as he was in the corporate boardroom. Um, and, you know, you learn the most when the fire is the hottest. Uh, working for that man was an awful hot fire. Um, and I would say probably to this day, if I were to point to one person who taught me more that ultimately led to whatever success I've had, it was him. But I can't stop this story without calling out one other person. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Charlie Long. Charlie Long was the secretary of the corporation for Citigroup. Uh, which was the first financial firm I worked for. It really launched my financial career after a stint in politics and then a stint in nonprofit. And Charlie was uh, probably the best sponsor that I ever had because he was a sponsor with a purpose. He brought me into Citigroup in the middle of my career, but with a plan, with a plan to launch me over a certain time frame into an executive role. And he saw to it that I started in a strategy role that helped give me a great kind of visualization of the company across all of its business lines, got me exposure to the senior executive team, uh, kind of put me on the map, if you will, and gave me a baseline understanding. He then orchestrated an opportunity for me to go take my first PL job in finance. I ran a division of the retail business uh, in Miami, in, uh, in Florida. And then he orchestrated an opportunity for me to take a leadership role in our wealth management business, which is what launched my career in investment leadership, which led to subsequent phases and ultimately to the position I have at Bridgewater today. So you know, in some sense, I got on the ladder because of Charlie Long. And uh, he, as I said, was probably the best sponsor I've had in my entire career. So those are the three that I call out as having the greatest impact
1: that's remarkable. Uh, I think when I hear your story about these people who have been so central to your success, what I first think about is the diversity of fields and of expertise that they brought into your life. I think about the passion that se- several of them have for uh, broader issues beyond themselves. i um, mm-hmm. all of them, if you will. And then certainly with your third example, having this plan, plan for your success. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something to be said about the people who are the most effective at building other people are those who are the most effective at centering other people's needs above their own. And I think what you've shared with us is a, is a really great, great exemplars of great mentorship in action. So I'm wondering then, as you think about yourself now in the position that you're in, I'm sure that there are. So many people who need your support and who you're who you're supporting. I, I'm first interested in understanding how important is it for you to think about paying it forward to those coming behind you. Um, and if and if that's important, which I'm assuming that it is, um, how are you doing that?
0: Yeah, so it, it's extremely important, Stephanie, as you would guess, and as you, you've indicated. You know, I've I've had a very fortunate career. Uh, There are many, many people who are far more successful than I am, but I've had more success than I imagined at the start of my career. Um, And really, uh, I'm coming in the final chapter. And one of the reasons why I'm actually pivoting my focus, I continue to be the co-head of the Americas at Bridgewater, but I've also taken on another responsibility as uh, senior advisor to our CEO for diversity and inclusion. And one of the reasons I've done that is I want to take the final few years of my career and really concentrate on giving back as as sort of a major focus and a major part of my efforts. Uh, But I'm also trying to do that outside of of Bridgewater, and I always have. Um, Mentoring is obviously a key part of that. I've always tried to have uh, some way, some connection to mentoring in some capacity. You mentioned one of the uh, organizations I've been involved in 100 Black Men Stanford. 100 Black Men of America basically started as a mentoring organization, an opportunity for successful Black men to mentor and help uh, groom those coming behind them. Um, my, my time and involvement in 100 Black Men has, um, I, you know, I've had a little less time to be involved in that late, lately, but I've tried to pick up other things uh to, to supplement. So I recently got involved with something that's also very local. Uh, the University of Connecticut, a group of really enterprising students there have formed a group called Black Leaders of UConn. Uh, this is a group started by un- under, university undergraduates to connect uh rising stars, uh Black stars with professionals in the finance field. And so I'm hoping to bring, you know, offer some of my experiences and lessons uh, that I've learned to help uh, some of those folks. You mentioned one of the things I'm involved with at Bridgewater. I'm a senior sponsor to our Bridgewater Black Network, uh, our affinity group. And then just generally, I've always tried to just keep an open door to our colleagues for what I call informal mentoring. You're not assigned or or, um, connected in any formal way, but you're open for advice whenever and wherever people need it. And then the last thing I've tried to complement that by finding more formalized ways to give back through nonprofit board service. You mentioned I'm currently on the board of Twigo, uh, which helps uh, black and brown students uh, both get their uh, MBA, but also find pathways into the industry and mentors to help them succeed. In the past, I've been on the board of the New York Urban League, which is kind of a broader remit, but I also see that as a means of giving back. And in the early part of my career, I actually uh, was a senior executive at the United Negro College Fund. Um, and that was another kind of you know chapter of me trying to think about how to give back. So it, it's always been part of what I've done. Um, and then I would say the other thing I've tried to uh, share with folks is the benefit of my experiences. And I, I, I kind of think of it in the context of cheap learning versus expensive learning. Expensive learning is when you uh, make the mistake and you pay the price, often a big price, and cheap learning is when you learn from other people's mistakes. So a key part of my mentoring frame is to share with people uh, cheap learning. Um, so that, that's that's how I thought about giving back, and those are some of the ways in which you know it it, uh, it manifests.
1: It's funny, I actually said paying it forward and you said giving back. And, and I think the, the perspective there is, is interesting. I think for, when as I think about what it means to pay it forward, I think about developing the next generation. Everything I hear you saying, even though I think for you, it may be may feel like you're paying it back. I actually feel like you're paying it forward. Do you differentiate those two things or do you see them as the same?
0: No, I see them as the same. I, I think that I, I mean the same thing that you mean. Um, <laughs> You know, maybe my phrase is old school. I don't know, but it's the same thing. All
1: right. So certainly, I think as we're beginning to talk about your leadership and how you're being really thoughtful around um, supporting the success of other people, including people who are historically underrepresented racially, um, I'm starting to think about this broader concept of inclusive leadership that has caught on in many organizations, I'm sure, including your own. Mm Um, and so let's talk about that. Let's talk about inclusive leadership more broadly. And I, I want to understand um, Bridgewater's stance on this topic.
0: Sure. Um, first, I, I just I just want to talk about why inclusion matters. You know, people hear the phrase diversity and inclusion or diversity, equity and inclusion. And the brain often gravitates to diversity in the form of representation because you can count it. You, you can know how, whether you're succeeding or not. But I think of diversity without inclusion. It's like an airplane without lift, Mm -hmm. right? Literally, without that aerodynamic force on the wings, the plane doesn't fly. And and it's like D&I in the sense that, yeah, you can see the plane, but you can't see that aerodynamic force, but it's what unlocks the power of that plane or inclusive by the same Met, you know, to extend the metaphor, inclusion is what unlocks the power of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, but but, it's hard to know how to make your organization more inclusive. You only know what when you're if you're succeeding uh, by asking people. And so, I think there are a number of things to think about. First, you have to define what you mean by inclusion, what your organization means. It can be very different for di- different organizations. and and in the end of the day, you have to ask people, it has to be almost a joint effort to define it. I've seen lots of different definitions, one that I particularly like. Uh, you know, I read in some research from Deloitte Insights. Um, it, it thinks of four key components to what creates an, a, a good culture of inclusion. People have to feel that there's fairness and respect. And that's kind of a group notion. It's kind of how are people like me treated. Um, then all people also but people also have to feel valued and a sense of belonging. That's an individual notion. How am I treated? They have to feel that the environment is safe and open. Like it's okay to speak up with different opinions. Um, and they also have to feel that the environment uh, creates empowerment and opportunity to grow, which means you have to have high levels of trust and give people the ability to take risks. So that's just one definition. But the point is, the first thing you have to do is sort of say, how do we as an organization want to think about inclusion? What matters? What creates that, that, that culture that we want to have? Mm-hmm. Then you have to understand your gaps. And then it gets hard because then you have to start to think about what are we willing to do to address those gaps, which often means some element of cultural change. And and you can't drive that cultural change just centrally. There are a lot of things, there's a lot of progress you can make in diversity and inclusion with a really great leader-led CEO leader and centrally driven team. You can change policies, you can set up training, you can set up affinity groups. But when it comes to things like creating a more inclusive culture, you can't do it unless you create broad engagement from leaderships at all levels and all reaches of the the company. That's literally what it takes to drive any kind of cultural change, including the cultural change of inclusion. And, you know, in terms of where we are at Bridgewater, just to hit the back part of your question, look, I would say we're both proud and humble, Mm -hmm. right? We've done a number of things uh, to move forward, I think meaningfully, in our diversity and inclusion journey. Both in terms of increasing our representation, um, in terms of you know, laying a great foundation, in terms of you know, uh, evolving our policies, um, uh, not only launching training, but launching ongoing sort of series of conversations, both outside speakers and inside conversations about diversity, about race, and about a whole host of things that are difficult to talk about in the workplace. All of that is in part a product of the strong commitment at the top from our CEO. But right now where we are is at that pivot point. At that pivot point that I just talked about, going from those things that can be very effectively centrally driven to those things where you really need to get all of the oars in the water. You've Mm -hmm. got to empower and engage your full leadership team. And we're very consciously aiming that adding at, at understanding and increasing the inclusiveness in our culture. That started, as I kind of talked about that classic path, uh, with a very rich and detailed survey to understand what's the state of inclusion, how do people think about it, how do we want to define it? And now we're gonna wrestle with that with our leadership team and think about the implications for our culture and what we should do. That's not the totality of our DNI strategy, but it's a very important place where we're kind of uh, focusing right now. And I think it's going to be foundational for the next phase of the journey we need to go on.
1: So to dive a little bit deeper into some of the things that you're saying, I'm going to give to you the dilemma that people always give to me. That's what I like to do is I like to, I like to share the love here. Oh, but the love that I usually feel or don't feel on this topic is, what about the people who don't believe um, that there is a problem that needs to be solved? What are you doing at Bridgewater to, if anything, right, to help people who were maybe non believers uh, to begin to help you aspire to reach some of these goals around inclusive leadership that you have at the firm?
0: Sure. Um, And, and, you know, I I think it's such a great question. Um, I I, want to start by saying that um, I don't care what the change you're trying to drive is in your organization cultural or otherwise you're going to have kind of just roughly speaking you know a third a third a third Mm -hmm. you're going to have a third of the people who just really get it instinctively they're already on board before you even started um, and they're ready to drive change they're all in you've got a third that are sort of open to it but probably need to be either um uh engaged, excited, or what have you, to really get them in the boat and pulling hard on the oar. And then you've got a third that just either are, uh, that that third that you're talking about. They either are skeptical, outright opposed, indifferent, don't get it, what have you. So the first thing I think about is just start with that first third, right? Get going with the first third, showcase and celebrate your successes. Because that's an important part of getting other people to say, hey, there's a train that's moving. And there are probably some reasons I might want to get on that train. They may be incentives that you create, rewards that you create for those that are helping you drive the train or what have you. So I don't want to duck your question, but I wanna just put that framework out because it's important. You could spend all day worrying about that last third and never start making progress. Yeah. But but I do think there are other things you can do to get to that last third. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about training. Um, Training doesn't change behaviors, particularly with that last third that may be oppositional in some way, but it does at least start the conversation. But I, I think it only works if you also find ways to continue the conversation. And just keep weaving that conversation into your culture and into your sort of regular business cadence. We've done that through something that I mentioned earlier. Um, We've we've created a diversity speaker series Mm -hmm. so that on an ongoing basis, we bring in people who are either experts in the diversity field, sometimes academics, could be a person like you, um, or industry leaders who themselves have made diversity a priority. Um, and we curate fireside, fireside chats, but much like this one. And we open those up to our whole community to give people across the spectrum of opinion, doubters, as well as believers, the opportunity to ask questions, to challenge, to, to present the other side so that we as a community wrestle um with with why this is important and whether we should do anything about it and i think that process helps bring along that final third there's no magic and there's no sort of one and done you have to have a sustained process and a sustained engagement to do it so that that's my high level answer i could elaborate on some of the specific things we've done but that's my high level answer
1: Absolutely. I think it's a great way to think about it. The third, the third, and the third. And I think so many people are so worried about the hardest third is how do you convert them, that they're missing the opportunities to engage the other two thirds who will help keep the ship moving while you're also creating other mechanisms, other resources to pull in that last third. As I always like to say, which is what you said, is you can't use the same tactics for everybody. Some people will um, be on board and and understand and get right away. Yeah, we should be inclusive. I shouldn't be um, asking my Black colleagues um, if there's any help that they need on their assignments, right? What can I do for them? Others will be like, well, why are we focusing Black? You know, it seems to me like this might be something that all people need. And so you're trying to help them to understand that's the second third, trying to help them to understand that inequities. The third, the last third is like, why are we even having this conversation to begin with? That's a different tactic that I think is needed. What do you think?
0: No, I, I agree. And, you know, I just, I want to highlight one example because I think it's, it, uh, it's sort of connected to the times that we're in as a country. And I think it was a powerful example of how you can create understanding um, if you curate the right type of experience. So in the wake of George Floyd's murder and kind of the racial awakening that this country had, and I, and I hope is still having, We did a number of things. I think uh, it was headlined. Again, we've been fortunate to have such strong uh, prioritization, messaging, and signaling coming from our CEO. Uh, So it started with his statement about our values and our beliefs and our uh, intent and desire to be an anti racist organization always, but especially in that moment to emphasize that message. We then sort of continued that theme. Um, with a couple of speakers who talked about race in this country, their personal experience, uh, talked about it from an institutional perspective. But then we used the concept of allyship, which is already about bringing others in. We used the concept of allyship, partnered with our Bridgewater Black Black Network, our Black Affinity Group, to create what I think was a pretty extraordinary experience. Uh, The members of our Bridgewater Black Network um, told their stories of either their first or their most poignant experience with racism, but they didn't literally read the stories themselves. Our allies, other colleagues across the company in in an event that was literally on Zoom for the entire company, read those stories. And they were very personal and they were very powerful and they were very emotional. And I think especially in that moment, the way those stories hit our community really um, caused people to stop and to think and to perhaps see the notions of institutional racism and some of the experiences that drives and, and how that hits not people who are distant and they don't know them, but maybe they heard about them or read them, people that they work with every day Mm -hmm. that's the thing that i think helped make it land and then we went on in the back half of that with our allies having done some of their own research which i think is another important part like the burden of explaining this was not on the black colleagues but our allies based on some of their own research kind of telling the story of the history of institutional racism in this country from the foundations of slavery, through Jim Crow, through things like redlining, and even up on in to and through so-called the war on crime and its disproportionate impact on black and brown communities. So I, I, I use that to illustrate one of the more powerful things that we did at Bridgewater that I think helped reach maybe even that last third, right. um, just, just, just an illustration.
1: Well, that's a great example of inclusive leadership in practice. I wanna share with you um, another thought that I've been um, gathering uh, based on some some feedback from students uh, these days. So the the latest generation entering into firms like Bridgewater and I I find it puzzling, but I also can understand where they're coming from. Many of our students today see, they only see diversity, equity, inclusion as a top-down corporate initiative. And so the questions that students are starting to ask me is is maybe we shouldn't be putting it or they're starting to take them like maybe we shouldn't be putting it in the hands of the leaders. People need to step up on their own who are on the ground. And I'm puzzled by this, Alan. And I don't know if you're puzzled by this, but I'm puzzled by this because I remember the time, which was like just yesterday where it was really the people on the ground like yourselves. There was no corporate diversity initiative. It it relied upon people such as you who were passionate about these issues, who were coming up through the organization to pound on the door of the CEO to say, we need to do something. So help for me for a second. I want to reconcile the, the different perspectives we have here. One is that it's this big, fancy corporate thing, and nobody on the ground is really taking responsibility for it. And in the way we were, which was everybody on the ground was really pushing the issue forward. Um, so can you can you sort of explain your perspective on that? Because I, I'm assuming that you've seen the evolution, such as I have, of once this was just about a grassroots initiative, and now it is a corporate initiative. How has that evolved from your perspective?
0: Sure. Um, first of all, I, I just to to borrow a phrase. Um, It's very important in my mind to say it's not either or, it needs to be both and, right? You need both of these things to be successful, and I want to talk about why they're both important. Um, For any effort, I don't care whether it's diversity inclusion or anything, diversity inclusion is another flavor in the end of the day of a business strategy, a way you want to drive and drive change uh, and achieve certain goals in your business those things don't succeed unless they have top-down prioritization top-down sponsorship uh, top-down ownership Mm -hmm. Um, you can have a flavor of the month or you can have pockets of success around your company without that strong top-down leadership but i think if you don't have that top-down leadership It means diversity and inclusion is less likely or even maybe unlikely to be a true corporate uh, priority, strategic priority, which, by the way, in my mind, means it needs to be connected to your business strategy. It can't be kind of a sidecar strategy. It's got to be integrated into your business strategy. Everybody has to understand why it's important. But you have to drive behavioral change, um, and, and that needs that top down. But you also need the bottom up. Uh, because you you need broad engagement to change culture. I, I, I think of uh, you know, culture is like like um, you could think of it like the collection of, of grains of sand on the beach, but each little uh, grain of sand is about what are the actions of each individual at that company day to day, week to week, month to month. So so you need both. And so then the question is, okay, what what should these folks at the bottom do? What can they do? The bottom, the middle, the upper middle, what can they do? I I, I think there are a number of things. Um, One of the most basic things that people can do, um, we've already talked about, it's just, it's allyship, Mm -hmm. right? Which is that notion of speaking up when you see things that are contrary to the inclusive and diverse culture that you're trying to create. So, you know, there's a tendency to think of allyship as something something that is needs to be owned by powerful leaders in your organization, often powerful white male leaders. But everybody can be an ally. I mean, I already talked about the example of the Bridgewater Black Network event where our allies from across the company stepped up and said, "No, we're not going to have our black colleagues read their stories. We want to read their stories as a as a statement of our support." and our allyship for them. Um, so it doesn't have to be sort of a, a big, grand, or singular uh, gesture in order to be an ally. Um, it, it could be an everyday action. One of the most powerful things I think anybody at any level of the organization can do as an ally, just call out microaggressions. Hmm. Um, and even there, you don't have to have a 100% hit rate. I I know there was a recent incident. I still carry it today as a miss. Um, I was on a call and one of the most common microaggressions that you hear uh, happen, which is something that was said by a woman in that conversation. It was a pivotal point that was then picked up on by a number of people. Later, that point was attributed to a man who had follow-on comment about it, as opposed to the woman who introduced the concept to begin with. And... Because of the nature and the flow of the conversation, a whole host of other reasons I could put up, which are ultimately just excuses, I didn't call that out. I missed the chance to be an ally. But, you know, as bad as that is, it's okay. As long as I see it as a miss, understand it as a miss, don't beat myself up and say, next time I'm going to hit that. Next time I'm going to step up and be that ally. So I just want to emphasize that one of the things any and everybody can do is to be an everyday ally. It doesn't have to be a grand gesture. The second thing I think you can do is a little bit more of a grand gesture, a little bit of an investment in the step and to, uh, of leaning in. But you know, as much as we have mentors and the importance of that, reverse mentoring is also important, mm-hmm. right? And anybody can become a reverse mentor because it's really about helping those who are more senior than you, those who have leadership positions in your organization, see circumstances through your eyes, right? See, let them hear how you experienced. It could be as simple as, you know, when I was in that meeting, I experienced a couple things that I just wanted to share with you because maybe it's a different perspective than you have. When I read that announcement that came out from the CEO, I wanted to let you know how that announcement hit me because maybe it's a different perspective um, than you had. All of those things are simple but powerful examples of reverse mentoring. There's this tendency we have to think that mentoring has to be a formal and programmatic thing. Mentoring from the top down, I always think it's just a matter of sharing your advice, your wisdom, your experience, giving people cheap learning. Mentoring from the bottom up is just sharing your perspective, your observations, your insights, explaining how something hits you Or makes you feel anybody can be a reverse mentor so those are some of the ways in which i think it needs to work from the top down and from the bottom up and how anybody can play those bottom-up roles
1: so as i as we start to close out i'm i want to rewind you to a time that hopefully was a good one and and that was your time as a student here at the wharton school so many of the people who um, listen to this podcast. Our students, many of them are executives like yourself, but there's a good portion of students, undergraduates, and MBA students who listen to this and you know are thinking to themselves, um, you know, I are actually feeling like when I enter my organization, I'm not sure that I'm going to have the capacity to make big changes happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to be part of the change. And I think to pick up on your idea of reverse mentoring. That certainly starts to paint somewhat of a picture of, I think, and a perspective they can take um, when they come into an organization, which is, a, I can be of service to someone senior by helping. I'm curious to know what else, as you think about who you were then and who they are now, what would you tell them as they think about wanting to be part of the change, but really feel that they are not part of the power structure yet, so don't maybe don't see it as clearly as you might.
0: Yeah. Um, I would say there are many things. Um, you know, I, I, I echo some of the things we just talked about, but the other thing I would encourage people to do is to seek out and get involved in affinity groups, Mm -hmm. or if an affinity group doesn't exist, see if you can be a leader and try to create one. um, or if you don't think that's possible because of lack of critical mass or whatever at your organization, look across your industry sector and see if you can kind of create a cross-company affinity group within your sector. There's a great example of that in the hedge fund space. In fact, I just had an opportunity to speak with this group. Uh, it's called the Black Hedge Fund Professionals Network. Um, you know, there's a there's a growing Group of African Americans uh, across the alternative investment industry, including the hedge fund industry. And and many of those firms in that space, including Bridgewater, as you know, as we talked about, have a Black affinity group. But boy, there's even more power in bringing those groups together across the industry. And that's what the Black Hedge Fund Professionals Network uh, is all about. But the point I'm trying to make is seek out, create, or join cross-industry affinity groups. Why do I say that? The first reason is those uh, organizations can be really powerful in creating safe spaces and networking spaces where um, people who look like you, and they're not exclusive, so it's not just people who look like you, but anybody can generally join these, can share experiences, can share uh, lessons, can learn from each other how to navigate um, the, the the company they're in, the industry they're in, how to climb the corporate ladder, whatever it is. Um, or just share a tough thing that you faced and you need an understanding or sympathetic ear to, to help you grapple with it so you can go back the next day and keep going. Safe space, learning spaces um you know collegial uh, collegial uh, engagement but the second thing and this is why i say these can be great for driving change affinity groups i think are different than sort of community groups community groups are great they bring together people with interests. they can do all kinds of social things around their common interest and i think affinity groups can do that but i think they have an additional mission as well which is to be part of the strategic change that the company is trying to drive. So one example of that is is the Bridgewater Black Network. Um, One of the things that we've done is to become uh, centrally involved in trying to attract black talent to Bridgewater. Um, Even from the very beginning of that process, as people first get, get into our recruiting pipe, we often get the question, hey, is there anybody there who looks like me? And by the way, can I talk with them? And so the, We've set up this process where a number of folks in the network will serve as resources. You know, really, someone you could call up, a candidate can call up and in a non evaluative way, just have a conversation about anything. What's it like to be a Black person at Bridgewater? Um, how has your career path been at Bridgewater? Any number of things they want to ask, but then to stay connected with those Black candidates as they go through uh, the pipe. And as they get to the point where we actually want to make an offer, to be one of the voices that reaches out to them and tries to help them see the opportunities that they can take advantage of by coming to Bridgewater. And so that's why I say that one of the things anybody can do from the very beginning of their career at any point in their career is to get involved in these affinity groups as a real means of having real impact uh, right from the beginning.
1: So thank you so much, Alan. I just, I'm thinking about the the conversation that we've had today. And certainly this really is deep dive into the value of relationships in the context of work life. we talked about your mentors, your sponsors and how much they were meaningful to you, you as a mentor and sponsor and how you support other people in their work. We talked about the importance of building relationships with the third of people who, who may not at all believe that inclusive leadership is a thing that um, your firm should be focusing on. Talks about reverse mentoring, even people who feel like they have no power, how they can effectively be allies to those who are senior. And certainly you just took us through this idea of, um, when you feel like you don't have power, maybe you don't know how to contribute or navigate finding a community, an affinity group, or building one. Um, and so I think what, we've, we're, what we're walking away with today is again this idea that while you did work hard and while you are absolutely brilliant and you've earned all that you've done, is that you would not have. Um, been able to achieve what you've achieved without other people. So I'm going to give you the last words before we close out here. Was there anything else you'd like to add?
0: No. Look, I, I think I think you've you've summarized it well. Um, uh, but but I would just say my story is not unique. Um, it's just representative. Um, I've been given great opportunities. You're right. You do have to be prepared when those opportunities come. Uh, you know, success is the marriage of, of, uh, of opportunity, sometimes luck, but also preparation. You have to be prepared and then you have to step up and deliver. Um, there, is, there is no shortage. There is no shortage of diverse talent that is well-prepared.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the thing that is in shorter supply than we need is opportunity. Uh, Finding ways to open those paths of opportunity is something that we can all contribute to. So that's my challenge to to people. Anybody can play a role. And it's also my commitment uh, with whatever time I have left uh, in my industry and in my career to try to make a difference, to try to open up opportunities wider to the vast number of people who are prepared to walk through the door.
1: Absolutely. Well, Alan, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Leading Diversity at Work podcast. Um, it's so uh, such an honor to have you here to share your experiences with us, uh, to talk about Um, the fact that it's not magic. It's a lot of work and a lot of the work for other people as we begin to think about how do we create inclusion belonging, but how how do we build um, successful talent in our organization? So I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Until next time, have a great evening. Bye now. For more insight from
0: Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.